Parshat Ki Tavo. This episode, this shir, is sponsored by Saul and Giselle Dunst, in memory of Saul's father, Joseph Dunst, who I remember well, was a Holocaust survivor, a member of our shul, a wonderful person, a uh, true Baltzadoka here in Beverly Hills and Los Angeles, Yosef David ben Yaakov Shlomo Zichon Levrocha. His yard site is on the 14th of Elul. His neshama should have an aliyah, we should be zeichet tzri tchias hameisim. Parashas kisovoi, velo kacha koin hatenem yodecha v'inichoi lifnei mizbach Hashem aleikecha. The Pesach says that when you bring bikurim, you should take the uh, a basket of fruits and the kohen, the priest, in the Beit HaMikdash, in the temple, in the Mishkan, uh, initially when they moved to Eret Yisrael, eventually it was the Beit HaMikdash, the Kohen will take the basket from your hands, and he will place it in front of the altar of God your God. Uh, the Mishnah says, the Mishnah in Bikurim, Peri Gimel, um, it says as follows, it's the eighth Mishnah of Peri Gimel in Bikurim. Ha'ashirim, the wealthy ones, the wealthy people, Mevim Bikurehem, Biklose Shel Kesef Veshel Zohov. They would have these beautiful silver gold containers, elaborate, beautiful containers, in which they would offer up the Bikurim. Vehoaniim Mevim Oisam Besale Netzorim Shel Arova Klufa. There was a woven baskets, was woven out of Arovois. And Arova, I mean, we know it's coming up to Sukkot, and Arova is the willow, willow branches. They would use willow branches in order to make uh, baskets. And those baskets were the baskets that they used in order to bring the Bikurim. They would put the Bikurim inside. So the wealthy people would have these very elaborate, fancy baskets of gold and silver. And the poor people, those who perhaps couldn't afford the gold and silver, what they would do is they would bring it in these woven um, willow branch Baskets, and they would give the bikurim in that. Vasalim vabikurim nesonin lakoenim, and the baskets and the bikurim would be given to the kohanim. The Mishnah explains. We're looking at the Mikdash Halevi. My grandfather Sefer says Mishnah Mavaeretski Hevdal Nikar Hayav Ben Haofen Shabai Haviu Haashirim Es Habikurim. There was a noticeable difference, a differentiation between the style of the gift that was brought by the Ashirim, the wealthy ones, and the poor ones. There was this divide, this class divide, as it were, between those people who could afford the fancy baskets and those who couldn't. And there was this divide, and the mission actually discusses it and describes it quite unusually. They would bring the Bikurim in these beautiful vessels, that uh, was so spectacular looking to the eye. I mean, listen, you would see a beautiful gold basket. It's something, oh, wow, that's quite something. Asuyim kesev made of silver and gold. What about the poor people who didn't have the resources to buy a gold or silver basket? What did they do? They would bring the um, 
they would bring the Bikurim in baskets which were woven from the willow branches. Fascinating, that was the differentiation and that the Mishnah actually mentions and brings this differentiation to light. And the Mishnah adds something and teaches us a very important piece of information. Information about what happened once the Bikurim was given to the Kohen. If you look at the Mishnah, the Mishnah tells you that the baskets of the poor people would remain in the possession of the Kohanim of the priests. However, the beautiful vessels, the baskets that were used by the Ashirim, by the wealthy people who brought Bikurim, they were returned to them. They got their gold and silver vessels back. They didn't remain in the possession of the Kohanim of the priests. Says the Mikdash Alevi, if you think about it, we really should be explaining this. This requires further drisha v'chakira. We need an explanation as to why this was the case. Why was there this practical differentiation in the way the Bikurim was received and what was done with it between the Ashirim, the wealthy people, and the Aniim, the poor people? Why is it that the baskets that was given that were given by the poor people remained in the possession of the Kohanim? But when it comes to the Ashirim, the wealthy people who'd given these beautiful, spectacular uh, baskets in which the Bikurim was placed, why did they have them returned? So if you can think about it, so obviously it requires explanation. And the most simple explanation for it is as follows because the fact is what are these um, wicker baskets worth these woven baskets really worth not very much at all so what difference does it make if the kohanim keep them or don't keep them it won't result in any kind of significant loss of money it won't result in any kind of significant loss to the people who gave them if the Kohanim um, retain them and keep them. But on the other hand, these magnificent gold or silver vessels in which the Bikurim was placed by the Ashirim, they're worth an incredible amount of money. And we know that the Torah, Halacha, is concerned about the possessions of Klal Yisrael, doesn't want to overly tax them. I mean, this is already considered a tax. Bikurim is a form of tax. You don't have to increase the amount of tax that you give. Now, it's, it, you know, it's like if you send your tax uh, check to the IRS in an envelope. You're not going to charge the IRS for the envelope because it's not a significant amount of money. The envelope doesn't cost you any money. However, you're not going to send it to them in a very valuable container, or if you do send it to them in a valuable container, I don't know, I can't think of the parallel, you would expect the IRS to send it back to you because it doesn't belong to them. That's not part of the tax payment. Similarly, and this is what the Mikdash Alevi is saying, if you bring Bikurim and you offer it up in a essentially valueless uh, container, then it makes a difference if the container is retained by the Kohanim or not. So of course they're going to retain it. However, the Ashirim, they bring the Bikurim in a container of value. So of course they expect to, to they expect to receive it back. They don't want it to remain in the possession of the Kohanim. 
For this reason, these kalim, these expensive containers, these expensive baskets are returned to their owners. Okay, it's very nice. I mean, that's the most obvious explanation. And it's the one that we all grew up with. If you ever learnt this, um, if you knew about this differentiation, this is the explanation for it, that the Ashirim have the expensive ones so they get them back and the Aniyam don't have such expensive ones so obviously it makes a difference to them if it is uh, if the Kohanim uh, keep them but if you think about it more carefully if you think about these two sides of the coin if if you're actually going to consider this differentiation in a slightly deeper way it's going to open up a, a, a real puzzle we really need to explain this. Of course, we know that the Aniyim, they can't afford to buy expensive vessels. So they bring them in these plain wicker baskets. That's what they bring them in. Because they can't afford to buy anything expensive. They don't have the resources to obtain an expensive container for the Bikurim. So they bring them in the cheapest possible container that they, that they have, which is, of course, a basket which is woven from the Aravot. Avuram gam ha'alois ha'pu'uto hazu. But for them, even the cost of this, this so-called tiny cost of the basket in which they bring the Bikurim, you should know that you can't just say, I mean, it's all very well to say it and just to dismiss it as being, as being inconsequential, but perhaps for the Anim it's not inconsequential. For them, a basket is something that they'll use once and reuse and reuse again. And they can't just discard it and, and give it away. They, they perhaps need it back. I mean, this is the maximum amount that they could afford in order to give honor to pay tribute um, the base Hamikdash. And the fact is, simply to say, well, it doesn't matter, it's not so valuable, we're going to keep it, that's very dismissive. It's quite disrespectful if you think about it. Because for the Aniyim, it's a significant thing. And if, you, if you're going to create a comparison, as the Mikdash Levi is about to do, you might say that this is as valuable to them as the gold and silver is to the, to the Ashirim. It's not for us to make a calculation and to decide. That the tiny amount of loss that is going to result because they leave their baskets with the Kohanim. Uh, it's not for us to make the calculation that these so-called valueless baskets is going to be a lesser loss than the loss of the basket which is made of gold and silver that is going to be these beautiful, elaborate, wonderful-looking um, gold and silver containers that this is going to be a more significant loss for the Ashirim and therefore we decide the Ashirim have to get their baskets back but the Anim don't need them back because they're not so valuable Perhaps it's exact opposite that you're miscalculating here because you're basing it on your own assessment, which is external. You've got no idea. You've not audited these people's uh, personal finances. You've got no idea what these things are worth to them. Perhaps you could say that this so-called tiny loss of money, which is going to result from them having to leave the basket in the base of Mikdash, 
is going to result in something which is Yachbid Olov um Aseres Moinim Ashe Yachbid Ala Oshir Chisar and Hakisa Kovid Pikamovakama. Perhaps the loss to the usher, to the wealthy person who brings the silver or the gold container, is far less for him to spend money on an elaborate and a beautiful gift to give to the Beis HaMikdash is not significant. They can pay the money. It's petty cash for them. But for the poor person who's worked so hard on the field, has very limited resources, for whom every penny counts, perhaps this wicker basket is of significant value to them and they need to keep it. And the loss to them is greater. It sounds ridiculous, but it's not if you think about it. If you want to be objective, it could be that the basket is uh, that's made of 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 the reeds of the aravot is more valuable to the oni than the gold or silver basket is to the osher. That's the question which is proposed here by the mikdash shalevi. Zoyis for oid and he adds to it as follows: Ilu amnam zeatam lokach shesali anim lishorim biyodam shalakoyim. If you're going to say that this is the reason that the baskets of the Aniyim remain in the possession of the Kainim, whereas the, the Kalim, the containers of the Ashirim of the wealthy people, is returned um, to, the, to the Ashirim themselves. If you think about it, that actually, this makes no sense at all. It's not logical, actually. It... it, it it has no logical underpinning. You're, what you're essentially saying is that if you are an Oni, not only do you have to bring Bikurim, you've also got to invest money in a basket, whatever that costs to you, and you've got to give it to the base of Mikdash. That's your tax. Your tax is Bikurim plus a basket. Whereas for the Oshir, that's not the case at all. What's the tax for him? Just the Bikurim, he doesn't have to bring anything else. How does that make any sense? Where is the logic in that? How is that fair that the Oni has to give more money, or the value, greater value, in terms of Bikurim, than the, um, than the Osher does when he brings his Bikurim to Yerushalayim? He has to absorb a greater loss, the Oni, than the Osher does. The wealthy people have no hefzid at all in terms of the container. It doesn't matter. In fact, it's, 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 um, it, it's all a show, isn't it? They bring these beautiful containers and they know full well in advance. It makes no difference how valuable the container is. So it's $1,000, $10,000, who cares? I'm going to get it back anyways. There's no loss and they can go back and give it to the shop. They can return it within the 30-day uh, money-back guarantee period and still look good because they've given these beautiful containers. Meanwhile, you know, there's no such option available to the poor person because he brings the basket and he has to leave it there. So it's actually a greater taxation on the poor than it is to the rich. How does that make any sense? It's not righteous. This isn't right. It's not, it doesn't make any sense that the Torah would demand something and that the Mishnah would, would establish that as the law, that the poor people have to pay a greater tax because they're poor than the rich people who are able to get away with paying less. And we can make, actually, this question even stronger. And that's something which makes no sense. You know what you're doing here? You are publicly shaming poor people for being poor. That's what you're doing. 
You are saying, ah, you're poor.、Mm, we'll keep your basket. You're rich. Oh, you can get your basket back. There's public humiliation, which is associated with the mitzvah of bikurim on the basis of the way that we have explained how this unfolds. Kashek of Yochel Machrizim onu b'koyram. It's as if we are declaring in a loud voice, ki kolehem enom shovim erech. You know what? These poor people, nah, they're kalim, they're basket. They're not worth anything. They're useless and worthless. You are publicly humiliating the poor people on the basis of the vessels of the baskets that they use in order to contain the bikurim. Ad she'ein onu chosim aleim to the extent that we we don't even care about them. They're so insignificant that we don't even care about them. Ein kadai lashivam b'shal pchisus erkam. They're so valueless. They're so meaningless. They're not even worth giving back. I don't know what we do with them. We'll throw them away. Who cares? They they mean nothing to us. You are humiliating the poor people by saying that. V'onutoyim ha'yitochein ligroim busho shekozul aniyam adalim. How is it possible that we could decree such an incredibly harsh humiliation on these poor, poverty-stricken people? Asher osu kol asher leliodam bichdei lechabed eselakim who did everything that was within their reach, within their power. In order to show honor and pay tribute to their God, and bring to the base hamikdash their bikurim, you're humiliating them. How is that even possible? How does it make any sense? Says the mikdash halevi, Ochei nira ki ha'inyan yavua la'oyer divrei hamalbim kan. In order to understand it, we have to turn to the malbim. A beautiful parish in the Malbim, who really opens this up and gives us an explanation that is satisfying and makes sense. He explains the difference between the baskets of the poor and the containers of the rich in a beautiful way, in a, such a powerful way. And this is what he says: As it would appear. That these poor people—they're so poor. The truth is, they can't even afford to buy a basket that's made out of wicker, that's that's been put together from the branches of the willow tree. They can't even afford that. They're so poor. They just have a bit of a vegetable patch or or a fruit、uh, orchard, whatever it is they have. The little piece of land that they have and that they maintain, and they subsistence farmers, they can just about make it work. They want to bring bikurim, but they've got no container. They walk to Yerushalayim from their farm. They don't even have anything that can contain the bikurim that they need to bring. So what do they do? The fichach heim ba'atzmam b'moyodehem koylem esasalim halalu l'shem mitzvah sabikurim. These baskets were not bought in a store. They didn't go shopping and come out with a nice basket that's made out of arovos. Not at all. They made them themselves. They weaved the baskets themselves. Unbelievable. Yes, Alkain, and even more than that. Beheklit sabe lohaniach kafilos arovos aklufos mehen koylim esasalim halolu. We could even imagine, says the Malbim, that these baskets, they weren't. Baskets that were made from random aravot that were found somewhere on a tree. 
No, that's not the case at all. Do you know what these baskets were made from? Do you know how they were woven? Do you know what was used in order to create the baskets to contain the Bikurim? Last year was Sukkot. This year they're going to have to bring the Bikurim. Do you know what they did? After Sukkot, they went around, they collected all the Arovas from all the people who had Arovas in their Lulavim. And obviously nobody needs the Arovas after Sukkot. And they were happy for, you know, to give them the Arovas. They have no value. And they gave them to the poor people. And the poor people would take these Arovas home and they would weave them into baskets in anticipation of the Bikurim that they were going to bring at the end of the harvest next year and that they would bring to the Beis HaMikdosh in baskets that were woven from Arovas that were used with the Lulav, Esra, Kadasim and Arovas as part of the Arba Minim. Specifically from one mitzvah to the next. From Arba Minim to Bikurim. Their intention was for these Arovas to become Bikurim Arovas. Unbelievable. They specially kept them back and kept them aside and collected them after Sukkot in order to create the baskets, the containers in which they would put the Bikurim so that they could bring the Bikurim and have containers to bring them to the Besamikdosh. By the sweat of their brow and the work of their hand, they created baskets for it's unbelievable what they invested the energy that they put in the excitement that they had the anticipation that they felt for the mitzvah of bikurim to the extent that the previous sukkahs already they brought the aravas together and created the baskets so they would have a container for the bikurim the, the Malbim explains further. Seeing as the Aniim, they worked so hard themselves. They put so much energy into it. Spiritual energy, physical energy. They sacrificed themselves in order to create the containers for the Bikurim. These are not ordinary baskets. These are not baskets that you buy in a store. These are not baskets that you can obtain because you logged into Amazon. These are baskets that have everything that you could have in terms of Kedusha, of holiness and Tahara and purity. And therefore they have the privilege and the benefit of not only giving the Bikurim, but even the Salim become a gift to Hashem together with the Bikurim they have been elevated to the status of being gifted to Hashem because of where they come from and how they were created on the other hand we have the Hashem, the wealthy people where did they get their baskets from well, how did they obtain their containers. They didn't do anything in order to create the containers for their Bikurim that they're going to bring to the Beis HaMikdash. No. They take out their checkbook, their credit card, and they take it from there. They've got plenty of resources. Financial resources are not a problem for the Ashirim. 
And they go into the local silver store or the local goldsmith and they say, excuse me, we'd like to buy this contain oh that's a very expensive one no problem take out their credit card swipe the credit card it's all going to be good Don't, that's it the whole thing takes five minutes and therefore even though these baskets these containers are exceptionally beautiful and very expensive their spiritual value is not high at all. Their physical, material value may be incredible, but they didn't really invest anything into this container. They didn't do what the Aniyam did. And therefore they are not worthy of being brought together with the Bikurim, like the Salim, like the baskets of the Aniyam. So you see the difference here. He's changed the whole context. They don't merit that their baskets should be used. It's not that they're lucky that they get them back. They're not lucky because their baskets are going to be returned to them. It's a whole different perspective. Because they don't have the same value. There's no embarrassment here for the Aniyim. On the contrary, perhaps there's embarrassment here for the Ashirim. Perhaps if they would have taken the Arabas last year, made them into a basket, they would be able to give their basket and it would be kept by the Beis HaMikdosh and by the Kohanim. But they don't have that benefit. No, no, they just went into a local store, spent a bit of money, brought it, and everyone says, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, but then they get it back. So what use is the ooh and the ah? It has no use whatsoever. As it turns out, says the Mikdash Alevi, basing himself on this beautiful Malbim, the value of the baskets of the Aniyim is greater than the value of the baskets of the Ashirim. There's no, absolutely uh, no element of embarrassing the Aniyim here in this situation. Quite the reverse. This is something for, of which they can be extremely proud. They can have pride because of their baskets. Recognition that they can take pride and be recognized for the investment that they put in to making sure that this mitzvah is done in the best possible way. Best possible way because they invested energy and time and of themselves into the performance of this mitzvah. And because of this, we can't say that they shouldn't keep them and that it's an extra tax. Not at all. The Anim are delighted that their baskets are kept. And they're delighted to go back home and after Sukkot take all their Arabas again and do exactly the same thing, a repeat of what they did last year. They're delighted to participate in this act to make sure that their baskets are used and not just used but taken and kept by the Beis Amikdosh. It's not an embarrassment to them. It's not an extra tax for them. It's an honor for them. And it's a badge of pride. And that's why it makes perfect sense. The Ein Khan Hefsud moment, there's no loss of money. Elozuchus Gadoila, 
This is the biggest merit, the biggest benefit that anyone could ever hope for and yearn for in terms of their performance of mitzvahs. We have to think about it. Now we're in the month of Elul. We certainly need to think about everything that we do in terms of the performance of our mitzvahs, the mitzvahs that we do, even us. We need to take a lesson. We need to take a leaf out of these people's book. We need to learn a lesson here of how we should conduct ourselves in the performance of mitzvahs. It's not just about the mitzvah of Bikurim that this information was conveyed to us. Not at all. This is something that feeds into everything that we do in terms of the service of Hashem, of the service of God. For every mitzvah that we take upon ourselves and do, do we do it properly? Do we invest the energy and the effort of the Oni? Or do we simply discard a bit of money to get the mitzvah done? Like the Oshir, in this example that's used by the Mishnah with regard to Bikurim. Where do we fit into this paradigm? Which side of the equation are we on? God doesn't just take a look at the actual outcome, the end result of the mitzvah, as a result of doing the mitzvah itself. No. He also wants to see what went into it. You know, I remember that when we took exams as kids, and you took a math paper, for example, you had to write your calculations on the side before you wrote the answer in the place and the space for the answer. Why was that? Because the teacher wants to know what is it that you know that resulted. It wasn't just a random guess that you knew the answer, but you knew the methodology that would enable you to answer the question, not just this time, but any time you were asked this question, this type of math question. Hashem doesn't want to just know that the mitzvah got done. He wants you to be fully invested in the mitzvah at every stage of the way. And the lead up to the mitzvah is as important as the mitzvah itself. The preparation is taken as much into consideration as the end result. The mesirus that we put into the mitzvah, that is something that Hashem is conscious of. And we need to be conscious of it as well. He is focused on the investment that we invested from ourselves, from ourselves and from our strengths, whatever it is, whatever energy that we have to put into the mitzvah. What did you invest? Is it just something that you could do and you just did it and it's done? And then you get on with your day? Or is it something which consumes you, not just as you're doing the mitzvah, but in anticipation and in advance of the mitzvah? And the more our investment is greater, and the more our um, conscious effort is pronounced, that's how much more elevated the mitzvah becomes. It's an incredible idea. And we see this beautifully demonstrated 
in terms of the salim, the baskets of the aniyim that were brought, we can understand this concept so well. These baskets, which seemingly have no value, were considered of such greater value. They were so much better in the eyes of Hashem that they were kept. And whereas the baskets of the Ashirim, perhaps greater in terms of material value, but where was the Mesiris? Where was the Hashka'ah? Where was the investment on the part of the Ashirim, not just to write the check, but to put themselves, in every aspect of themselves, to make it happen? The Kalim of the Aniyim were so much more valuable, so much more elevated than the beautiful gold and silver baskets that were brought by the Ashirim. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to look carefully at every single mitzvah to make sure that we put the maximum of ourselves that we can into each and every mitzvah so that the mitzvah has the greatest possible value. The potential is there. The value is only there if we realize that potential. The more we invest and the greater the amount of investment that we put in to this mitzvah, so will be increased the level that Hashem wants our mitzvah and wants that mitzvah and treats that mitzvah with, a, with greater value. It's more important to Him. And the results that will emerge, both in terms of spiritual results and in terms of material results, that will emerge out of this mitzvah, to gadlena asores moinim l'umas mitzvah zeya shenasas Fact is, the more we put in, and we know this from every other aspect of our lives, the more we put into something, the more we take out of it. The more we're invested, the more valuable. The more we create something as a central and important part of our lives, the more it becomes a central and important part of our lives. Don't treat something in a superficial way. Every mitzvah matters, and we need to treat every mitzvah as if it matters. That is the message of the baskets of the Bikurim from the Mishnah in Bikurim. I'm going to do one, one more Dvatur. I'm not sure if I'm going to finish the whole thing, but it's a beautiful idea. I want to share it with you from the Mikdash HaLevi. Much later on in the Parshim Kisovo, we have this juxtaposition of the brochos and the klolos, the blessings and the curses, or, um, you know, the positive results and the negative repercussions of our own behavior. Hashem says, Moshe Rabbeinu says about what Hashem is going to do. Hashem will make you into a Rosh. Of course, this is the famous tefillah that we say on Rosh Hashanah night when we eat the fish or the fish head. That we should be elevated and not uh, at sort of ground level. We shouldn't be. We should be the head. We shouldn't be the tail. It's just a, a metaphor for where we should be in life. We should be a Rosh in life, not a Zonov 
in life. You should be elevated. Shouldn't be below or down. Because you listened to the commandments of the commandments of God, your God, which I, Mashrabenu, is repeating, which I have commanded you today that you should observe them and do. And you shouldn't in any turn or divert yourself from all the things that I'm telling you to do today. Don't go right, don't go left, don't divert. Stay on the path, stay straight and keep going. Don't suddenly become attracted to other gods. Keep solid. Stay straight on the path, which is the monotheistic path, the path of Emunas Hashem, of believing in Hashem, but, and doing the mitzvahs that Hashem has commanded you. The Chayre de Yeshla Ayin says, the Mikdash Alevi, we really need to focus on this. We know that all of these brachas are promised to somebody who can be considered a great tzaddik. In a previous Dvatur, the Mikdash Alevi says, and he, and he draws it, he derives it out of another posuk. If you listen to the voice of God, your God, so the introduction to the brachas, the introduction to the blessings, says if you are a person who listens to all the things that Hashem tells you to do, you are going to get all of these brachas. How is it even possible to suggest that a tzaddik gomor might divert himself from the pure path and become an Ovid Avodazara? What? How would you even suggest that? Where's, where's this come in? You know, where's the idea? You know, you're wonderful people, I'm going to give you brachas, but if you ever become a mafioso, you'll be sorry. What are you talking about? You're talking to tzaddikim. Why would you suggest that a tzaddik's going to become an Ovid Avodazara, a Balavera? Where's that coming from? Klum nale al datenu ki tzaddikom yistem in would never occur to us to think that somebody who's a tzaddik gomor would ever in their life contemplate the idea of becoming an over this exaggerated, this extreme idea that this is what could occur to a tzaddik gomor. It's something that just simply doesn't make any sense. You are the greatest tzaddik on earth. You're somebody at the level of Reb Chaim Kanievsky, and suddenly you become an Avoid Zora? Where's that even coming from? How's that even possible? Why would we suggest it? Why would the Torah even allow that to be a consideration? Where's it coming from? Ochein Lamito Sheldova says the Mikdash Levi, and I don't think it's the most profound idea. We all know it. It's hovering there in the back of our minds, sometimes even in the front of our minds. The truth is, he says, and the answer is, actually, yes. Even the greatest tzaddik of all, somebody who's the ultimate in terms of tzidkus, never strayed in his life or in her life. Unbelievable. Your yetzahara is constantly working. It's like a salesman constantly knocking on your door or calling your phone 
until eventually you answer and then suddenly you're in there in, in the clutches of the Yetzirah. You know what you can do, the Yetzirah? can take you from the highest summit to the lowest of the low. That is the capability of the Yetzirah, of your physical inclination. You have it in you to go wrong, to go bad, to go even from being at the level, as it were, of Reb Chaim Kanievsky to being somebody who's a pagan idol worshipper. How is that possible? The Mishnah taught us as follows. The Mishnah in Ovas Perik Beis, Mishnah Dalad. The Mishnah says, Don't trust yourself until your dying day. Don't allow yourself any slack. Don't imagine that because you kept on the straight and narrow until now that you're safe. You're not safe even until your dying day. And the Gemara says, Do you know what it means? The Gemara cites the example of Yochanan Kohen Godel, sort of a legendary Kohen Godel, probably most likely John Hyrcanus, one of the Maccabee kings, who was initially one of the Chashmoinoim, somebody who respected the, uh, the prevalent, the existing Sanhedrin, whoever it was. He was a brother-in-law of Shimon ben Shotach, and he went Latar Basra. He was the Kohen Godel. It says here 80 years, and it's a Guzma Dika number, but he lived around that time, and somehow at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life, during the course of his reign, he became a Sadducee. He became a denier of God. He was so wicked. He killed Chazal, hundreds, while he was feasting. The Gemara describes it. He was feasting together with his courtiers and his, and his military, and he watched as all the Chachomim, Tamidah Chachomim, all Chazal who were alive at that time. Thankfully, Shimon ben Shatach went into hiding. His sister warned him in advance, and he managed to escape. But everybody else was killed. Unbelievable. We have here a terrible idea. It, it reveals to us a terrible possibility. He's already in old age. All his life he'd been a Kohen Gadol, or, or for the, the tenure of his high priesthood had been maintained for a number of years. Do you know what he did every year on Yom Kippur? He went into the Kodesh Kodoshim. That was a dangerous place to go if you weren't the Kohen Gadol. And even if you were the Kohen Gadol, do you know why? You had to be a Tzadik Gomor to get in and get out of the Kodesh Kodoshim. He had to be perfect. There was no other way. If he wasn't a Tzadik Gomor, what would have happened to him? He would have died on the spot. If he had the slightest amount of sin, contaminating who he was, even in his mind. That means he'd never done anything wrong, but some bad thought. 
had contaminated his neshama, he wouldn't be a tzaddik gomor anymore. What would happen to him? He wouldn't have emerged alive from the inner sanctum, from the sanctuary. He wouldn't have been able to, so he must have been a tzaddik, and yet, at the end of his life, he became a tzaduki. Despite the incredibly elevated level of Yochanan Kohen Gadol, in terms of who he was and who he became, he was a tzaddik gomor, who his daradeb achris yomov adlish ultachdis. The end of his days, end of his life, he sank. It's as if he fell off the edge of a cliff in terms of his spiritual um, heights. He went into the lowest low. Became a Sadducee who denies the validity of the Torah and of the afterlife. That was the defining characteristics of the Sadducees of the Tzidukim. To teach you. This Mishnah and this member of the Gemara, this story, this narrative about Yochanan Kohen Gadol is there to teach you. Even the greatest Tzadik it's possible for them to become completely consumed by sin. And even such a person needs to be warned not to worship pagan gods. The Gemara says, There's a memory in the Gemara. Somebody who tears his clothes because he loses his temper, he flies into a rage and rips his clothes. Somebody who throws plates, glassware, onto the floor and breaks them because he's in a rage or she's in a rage. Somebody who throws out money in a rage and anger. They should be in your eyes. You should consider them as if they are pagan idol worshippers. Because this is how the Yetzirah works. Now the Yetzirah says, do this, which seemingly is not an Avera. You're just letting out your anger. And the next day, knocks on your door and suddenly the Yetzirah is an in now tells you to do something else slightly worse until the Yetzirah will tell you worship pagan idols and you'll do it because you've made yourself vulnerable to the instruction of the Yetzirah you allowed yourself you opened yourself up to the Yetzirah and now there's no stopping him the Yetzirah can take a hold of you. The Posuk here in Parshaski Sovoy is telling you an incredibly important Yesoid, a foundational characteristic of human nature, which is don't trust yourself. Anybody can fall into the trap of doing something wrong if they allow themselves vulnerabilities and openings where the Yetzirah can get inside and I don't, I don't need to tell you stories and I don't, need to share, I, don't, I don't need to share anecdotes. I think we all know what this means in our own personal lives. We conduct ourselves with dignity, with discipline, 
we do the right things, we say the right things and we behave right and suddenly we're in a bit of a crisis situation and that crisis offers us a number of different choices. We can take the right choice which may make things tougher for us or we can make the wrong choice which morally is going to be harmful but may enable us to escape from the situation in which we find ourselves. The Torah is telling you, you need to be strong if you want to retain your tzidkus. Don't imagine that just because all these blessings are going to be coming to you because you're a tzaddik, that that is something that is absolutely guaranteed and certain. It's not set in stone that the way you are now is the way you're going to be. Don't go yomin or smile. By the way, if you turn slightly right, it doesn't seem like, like a diversion. If you turn slightly right, you're just a little bit away from where you need to be. But as that path continues, the straight path is ever greater distant from where you need to be. Yomin or smile, all you need to do is turn slightly in the wrong direction. And who knows where you'll end up? That is the powerful message of Kisave. It's a simple answer. It's the simplest answer. But it's the answer that's most true and the one that makes most sense. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you. Thank you.